Stanford University. And the Stanford Graduate School of Business. If you were to open up my uh, computer and look at the list of bookmark uh, websites on Google Chrome, you'd see a bunch of the usual suspects. Um, uh, Google Maps, uh, I'm a sports nut, so ESPN is on there. I like AccuWeather uh, to get weather updates. But you'd also see a much more offbeat uh, link there, simply titled Film, How It All Got Started. And you might conclude from that that, well, I guess Joe's quite a film buff. But that's actually not the case. I mean, I, I, I like movies. I like movies uh, quite a bit. But I, I didn't even take cinematography or whatever uh, back when I was in school. And you wouldn't quite call me a film buff. Actually, the reason why this website uh, is on that list is that the story absolutely fascinates me. Uh, and despite the fact that it's over 100 years old, I continue to find it incredibly relevant to today. How many of you have heard of the film The Great Train Robbery? Right? It's quite a revolutionary film, even though it's, it's really short. I think it might be 12 or 14 minutes, something uh, like that. Uh, but it really uh, completely revolutionized uh, an industry. Uh, before The Great Train Robbery, films were shot from a single wide shot camera position while actors paraded in front of the camera a stage play on film. Now, to many of us, uh, the fact that the producers and creators of The Great Train Robbery could see that there were other possibilities, that you could cut and edit, uh, that you could uh, have one scene, you could have kind of the passengers uh, kind of having a good time on the train, and then you could cut to the bad guys as they scheme uh, what they're going to be doing. And then you could do a close-up uh, on the faces of the bad guy or the close-ups of the, the normal people on the train, that all seems pretty self-evident to us. But up until the point when the Great Train Robbery was created, an entire industry didn't see that. The creators of the Great Train Robbery saw that possibility that an entire industry was blind to. Now, one of the most amazing parts of the story to me uh, is this next part, is that even after the Great Train Robbery came out, the vast majority of the industry still could not let loose of their previous paradigm. I love this quote. During the early days of film, some producers resisted the use of close-ups, arguing that they had paid for the whole actor, so they wanted to see the whole actor at all times. <laughs> now, you can't make this stuff up. Right? Now, we find that incredibly funny, but we, we find it funny because we, we know how the story uh, ended. Uh, but there are certain people who really had uh, a tremendous vision for what film could be. Uh, we understand this kind of perspective. The motion picture today is the greatest medium of expression the world's ever known, capable of giving life and form to all ideas, practical and emotional. Its only limitation is uh, human ingenuity. Great quote, probably summarizes most of our view about film today. It's a really pretty amazing medium. It's kind of fun to watch the Oscars on Sunday night and see everything that's going on uh, in the world of film lately. The interesting thing, though, about this guy, John Seitz, who's the cinematographer quoted, uh, is that he made that quote back in 1930. 
uh, he saw these possibilities and even went so far as to say, hey, there's possibilities here that I haven't even thought of yet. Uh, he was one of those visionaries who could see things while an entire industry was still blind to them. And as a consequence, he went on to get seven Academy Award nominations. So what, you might ask, does this all have to do uh, with entrepreneurship? Well, I contend very simply that entrepreneurship uh, is, uh, that entrepreneurship at its center builds off tectonic shifts. And tectonic shifts that create opportunities for people to see things that entire industries are blind to. The film industry is just one example, but I think we continue to see example after example uh, today. And quite honestly, this relates very much to um, Pandora. Uh, by the way, before I uh, talk about the Pandora piece, uh, I also contend that we live in a world today of uh, accelerating pace of tectonic shifts. I think if one were to look at the pace of history, the, the number of these tectonic shifts that came along you know, the, the periodicity of them was much, much greater in terms of the number of years. We're being hit over and over again. We look back on the rollout of the internet as ancient history uh, 20 years ago and say, hey, since then, uh, we've had even greater changes, uh, global warming changes, the development of the human genome, uh, the development of uh, mobile broadband wireless, as I'll talk about, creates even new possibilities on, on top of uh, the wired broadband. So I think what that means is that the opportunities for entrepreneurship are greater today and will be greater in the future than they ever have before because these tectonic shifts uh, are accelerating. Um, but the key is to see these possibilities while others are blind to them. Uh, so back to the Pandora part of this uh, story. Uh, it, was, it was pretty early in the, the, the process of, of Pandora when I read this quote. This quote is from the CEO of one of the great big uh, radio conglomerates. Radio in this country, as you may know, is highly uh, consolidated by entities like Clear Channel and, and CBS. Uh, and I won't name the specific uh, individual company, uh, but this is a quote uh, that they uh, uh, made, uh, I don't know, probably six, seven years ago at this point. Uh, and the quote was, I like the internet. It's like another broadcast tower for our stations. Or put another way, I love film. It's another way for me to distribute my stage plays. We very much disagreed with this view uh, of the internet. In fact, let me kind of walk through kind of the foundation of our thinking that underlay kind of our look at the world that turned out to be a little different from how the existing industry looked at it. Uh, some really basic stuff. We grew up. Uh, in a world that was really dominated by broadcast media. I'm old enough, I can remember that uh, really there were three dominant uh, television networks uh, back in the 60s and 70s, and tens of millions of households tuned in uh, each evening uh, and listened to, uh, you know, Walter Cronkite and his successors and Huntley and Brinkley and their successors. Um, and all of America experienced a very small set of content delivered the same way at the same time to tens of millions of people. That's the broadcast world. In music, people would listen to the top 40 countdown on Sunday by Casey Kasem or 
uh, his ultimate uh, successors. It was a broadcast world, which is one to many and one way. In fact, still, as far as we've come, the vast majority of media content in the world today is still consumed off of this model. Along comes the internet, uh, which is fundamentally different. And again, I realize this is really basic, but I contend that it's tremendously powerful. Um, uh, this diagram on the, on the left, like, kind of like I just found it doing a, a, a Google search, uh, and it's from some NYU course on uh, the technology of the internet. And it just scribbles uh, you know, unicast and makes the point that in a, in, on the internet, there's one stream uh, per client. Uh, a unique characteristic of the internet is that every single one of us, when we connect, has a unique connection. There literally is no advantage on the internet to sending the same set of bits uh, to multiple people. You would literally have to send them uh, uh, multiple times, one for each user uh, anyway. So it's a unicast uh, medium uh, that is one-to-one, -one, and importantly, it's two-way. All right, so that's incredibly uh, basic. Forgive me for that. But I contend that those characteristics change everything. Uh, and the one-to-one -one nature of the internet enables personalization. I know there was a panel earlier today on the personalized web. I don't think personalization is just some one random thing that people have happened to take advantage of in the internet. It is one of the most fundamental things that the internet revolution enables because the internet's one-to-one. -one. Um, and second, the two-way nature of the internet enables all sorts of co-somethings. Uh, and I think people are continuing to find uh, even more and more ideas in terms of co-somethings. Co-something, co-creation, community, conversation, competition, uh, commerce. In fact, I might go so far as to say if you look at the big winners, the really big winners from the first wave of the, the internet, all of them uh, in, in, in very basic ways took something that pre-existed the internet and updated it, had the vision to see what others were blind to, updated it using these two capabilities of the internet. Google, in many ways, is just a directory. In fact, if you know the history of the web, the early dominant uh, player in something akin to search was Yahoo. But Yahoo was a great big directory. In computer terms, it was just this great big tree. It was just you could drill deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, and maybe you could actually find uh, what, you, uh, what you ultimately wanted. Google came along, turned that whole idea on its head, and said, forget this whole directory thing. That's a little bit like the broadcast model. How about you tell us, the website, what you're looking for, and I'll create a personalized directory for just what you're uh, what you're after. So um, this happens to be uh, a search for uh, iPhone Bluetooth headset. I happen to be searching for an, iTooth, uh, an iPhone Bluetooth headset. And in essence, what I get is a personalized directory on just the topic that I want. Uh, incredibly basic, you'd say. But again, I think that's really the, uh, the, the cornerstone of what Google did, is take this concept of directory, personalize it, and then take advantage of the fact that the community could rank uh, using the page rank algorithm of, of Google and, and make that directory as useful uh, as possible. Uh, Facebook, uh, which has become many things and, and is an extraordinary beast, but at its core started by taking the idea of a college Facebook uh, and bringing to it uh, personalization and community. Uh, eBay is basically one of the most old-fashioned, you know, oldest-fashioned concepts there is. It's a flea market. 
Um, but they took the concept of flea market and added personalization. Uh, in this case, uh, I was searching for um, uh, a very specific disc by a late Renaissance, early Baroque uh, composer named Heinrich Schutz. I was looking for this for my brother's uh, Christmas present, of all things, who likes choral music. Um, and uh, in essence, what I got is a flea market of purveyors of the music of Heinrich Schutz. Uh, and uh, the other interesting thing is that eBay always used community to solve one of the biggest problems in the flea market world, which is, can I trust this seller? Uh, gosh, it's just kind of this, this fly-by-night booth that I'm uh, up against. How do I know whether it's trustworthy uh, or not? And eBay very smartly solved that uh, with community rankings. Amazon, in many ways, I find one of the most amazing stories uh, in all of the, the kind of big first generation uh, 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 internet in that it's just a mail order catalog. I mean, re at, its, at its core, and mail order catalogs have been around for almost a century. I mean, Sears Roebuck started uh, as a catalog. When Amazon started, there were tons of mail order catalogs in this country uh, run by uh, presumably smart, intelligent people, um, but none of them had the vision that uh, Jeff Bezos had, uh, and uh, uh, remarkably, they're all pretty much uh, dead and gone. There's still some niches in the mail order catalog uh, uh, world, but he really took the concept of mail order catalog, uh, personalized it. Again, ratings are, are tremendously important. I could just go right uh, I didn't have to kind of page through. I could do a search, and I actually found this uh, CD that I was uh, looking for. Uh, it's a little mind-boggling if you actually look at that. The price of that was $113. Um, it's really good choral music, and I like my brother a lot. Um, <laughs> so I did buy it for him. Uh, uh, and really took advantage of community and obviously uh, uh, commerce, and, and Amazon is a tremendous behemoth. Uh, obviously, as a result of this. Uh, so, so again, if you tie this back to Pandora, you know, what's, what's the key central under, insight that underlies Pandora is, well, there's this thing called radio that's been around since 1920, uh, still listened to by hundreds of millions of people in this country, billions of people around the world, but it operates in a broadcast model. It's one way, uh, it's one to many. We brought the observation, being people who are very passionate about music, but the interesting thing about radio is, yes, it's this kind of broadcast model which drives you to kind of vanilla, chocolate, strawberry kind of offerings, but music is intensely personal. It's incredibly diverse as a category. It's intensely personal, and so it is made for this personalization potential uh, that the Internet uh, enables, and that we could actually, using the intellectual property hat we had, in essence, enable our users to co-create their experience. The experience would be unique to them uh, and because of the opportunity for feedback that they literally could co-create uh, their uh, experience. So you might say, Joe, that's all great and uh, fine and well and good. Uh, I might mention, by the way, that uh, it's not quite as simple as having this set of ideas. Obviously, people at Google and Amazon had to execute uh, very well uh, as well, but there is, I contend, a foundation core insight, a vision uh, that's based on seeing things that others are blind to that is at the very core of the success of all of those uh, entities, and we fall 
someone in the same bucket. But you still might come back and say, you know, that's all fine and good, wonderful explanation of the past uh, in the rearview mirror, uh, and uh, heck, we're trying to be entrepreneurs now, haven't all the great opportunities been taken? And to that I contend, uh, even in my film saga, uh, which is uh, uh, basically a century old, there are still people who have extraordinary vision and are seeing possibilities that others are blind to. The creators of Avatar uh, are just one uh, incredible uh, example. Uh, one might say Inception in many ways. Inception won a whole bunch of cinematography uh, awards Sunday night because it, it brought new concepts to film uh, that really had never quite uh, been done uh, before. So there's still plenty of opportunity uh, even in these categories for visionaries who see opportunities that others are blind to. In some cases, for example, the development of animation, which really, the, the, as I understand it, the creators of Avatar waited for years for the technology to catch up uh, so that they could put together some of their concepts that they knew the technology would ultimately enable uh, that they could actually bring them to life uh, in film. I want to talk a little bit about mobile, which is a little bit closer to today. Uh, all of us in this room might be so kind of forward-thinking, leading edge that we think mobile is old news. Uh, but I would say we are very much still in the early phases of uh, feeling the impact of what uh, mobile broadband uh, connectivity uh, does uh, for us. Uh, in, in many ways, uh, I think there's, there's some people who, who approach uh, mobile and say, well, it's just the internet. It's just you know, the internet, um, and so it's not really um, you know, quite the breakthrough of mobile, uh, of uh, broadband wireless uh, in its fixed form. Uh, but I, I, I do think that, uh, and I'll talk about some examples, that the cornerstone uh, element of mobile broadband wireless, that it is with you, as simple as that sounds, uh, is, has already been the basis for insights uh, by visionary entrepreneurs uh, that have been able to create significant new opportunities uh, as a consequence of that. Um, so obviously, uh, the things that I talked about before are still relevant, but I think the with you part uh, changes lots of things. And I don't pretend to know, and I, would, uh, I, I actually believe the list of, uh, sorry about that, uh, the list of possibilities that are simply a function of the with you part uh, is still uh, exploding. Clearly, uh, location-based uh, opportunities are, are there. You can see all of those uh, developing. Uh, one, I must admit that I completely missed, uh, even as this was developing, maybe I've just been too busy uh, during this period, is, is simply the, the, the opportunities for time-killing that are a function of the fact that the device is uh, uh, is with you. Uh, a few examples. Uh, again, I think Google folks uh, uh, do an extraordinary number of things well. They were among the very first to kind of modify their app. It's kind of an interesting story. If you go to the original iPhone, uh, when apps first came out, um, uh, Google had an application that was pre-installed. It was Maps. Uh, Yahoo an application, had an application that was pre-installed that was Weather. Uh, the Yahoo weather application was completely unchanged, sorry about that, uh, completely unchanged from what Yahoo weather was on the web. It's just Yahoo weather, which is 
useful in itself. But the interesting thing is right beside it uh, from Google was the Google Maps application. Who'd added this, you know, this wonderful little thing in the lower left that when you press on it tells you uh, where you are? Uh, and I think many of us have experienced just that simple little capability uh, has dramatically changed the utility of the device. Uh, OpenTable is a really interesting story. I don't know if any of you have heard Jeff Jordan, the CEO of OpenTable, uh, talk about mobile and uh, OpenTable. They, they actually did not move quickly uh, on this one. They weren't originally sure it would have much applicability. Um, but then they focused on the fact that there's a new capability that could be brought to OpenTable, which is to not simply make a, a restaurant reservation but to make a reservation that's near you. Uh, and uh, when they brought this, uh, so find a table that, that's uh, nearby based on your location, uh, they found an incredible adoption of, uh, of their mobile app. And I think it now represents something like 20 or 25% uh, of all the reservations that are made uh, on OpenTable and is the most important growth element uh, of their business. And then there's bubble wrap. Uh, put this in the category of things I didn't have the vision to see. I'm clearly in the blind to uh, category uh, here. But uh, this application gets a lot of use on my iPhone. Um, and it has to do with the time killer thing. Uh, in that time period between you get to the restaurant, you order the food, and you're waiting for it to arrive. You have a major kind of time-killing element. Uh, I have two daughters. And one of their favorite things to do in that time-killing moment is to pummel dad once again at bubble wrap. Um, I have never beaten them at uh, bubble wrap. I guess my, I keep saying my fingers are too big. Uh, but it's interesting, again, in the sense that um, the truth is the, the, uh, the iPhone and other devices have become uh, tremendously powerful uh, gaming devices. In some cases, uh, those, those games today take advantage of connectivity. In other cases, they don't. I think we'll certainly see more and more of the devices taking advantage of connectivity uh, in the context of, of games. But again, the, the people who got out in front of this are people who had the vision to see possibilities based on what this new uh, tectonic shift and mobile uh, wireless broadband, uh, mobile wireless broadband enabled. So what's wrong with this picture? It gives the same old book in the new format. Or put another way, before iBooks to be invented were simply pictures of the original pages of a paper book displayed statically on a screen, a digital copy of a paper book. <coughs> Imagine what a book actually could transform itself into. And, and some of you may know there have been people who've been playing around with this. And, uh, but I contend that, that even if you're aware of those, which are kind of bringing in some visual elements, imagine what the possibilities really could be here in the context of a book on something like uh, an iPad. Yes, not only are there opportunities for it to be non-static, for there to be uh, live video and interactive elements in it, uh, perhaps there are even opportunities to, uh, to
to have different endings for different people. You might be part of a, uh, a group uh, that, in, in some sense, the, 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 what's, what's a book when it's combined with a massively multiplayer online game in which the book itself changes and morphs as you go through the experience? I'm not contending that's the greatest idea on the planet, but I think it's an interesting illustration. And particularly in the context of you know, a little bit of a contest between Kindle, which is a phenomenal, phenomenal device, but in some sense is deeply invested in the concept of the electronic book is pretty much the digital version of the static paper book. Uh, and what a book might be in terms of the much more capable devices that are uh, out there in terms of iPads and other forms of tablet computing. I think it'll be really interesting to watch and see uh, what, what is a book. There's, uh, certainly, there's going to be for decades books in their conventional form uh, you know, delivered on electronic devices. But where might creative people go in terms of what, uh, what iBooks or electronic books uh, enable? So as this conference wraps up, um, and I suspect we have a room full of uh, entrepreneurs to be in here, the question I would leave you is, what do you see that all the rest of us are blind to? Thank you all very much. It's really a pleasure being with you. I hope you've enjoyed the conference a great deal. So we'll take some questions now. On questions on this, questions on anything else except IPOs and S1s and things like that. It's related to pricing, so maybe it's IPO related. Yeah, IPO, IPO is kind of in the hands of God and the SEC at this point. So, Other questions, comments? Uh, the question is, how is Pandora different from Spotify? Uh, and, and Spotify is a great product. They've, they've done some um, uh, terrific work. Um, Spotify is best at kind of uh, when you know what you want and you want to hear it uh, on demand, you know, that's what it's good at. So uh, uh, you know, if, if you have to hear... Uh, you know, the new Lady Gaga track, Born That Way, and you need to hear it now, Pandora's a really crappy place to get that experience, uh, and Spotify is a good place to get that. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll continue on from, from there. Uh, what we focus on is uh, that point period of time when you want someone else to play DJ, when you want a serendipitous experience, when you want discovery. Uh, et cetera. And that's what we seek to do better than anyone else uh, in the world. And the Spotify guys do a great job with kind of an on-demand kind of client, uh, build your own playlist, even share that, uh, that uh, playlist. So there's kind of, we're trying to solve somewhat different, not, not 180 degree different problems, but somewhat different uh, problems. The second part of the question was how do we have a better business? Uh, 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 and, and again, I actually don't see ourselves competing with Spotify, so I don't necessarily feel I have to, in some way, diss their business to feel good about uh, ours. I think there's room for both to, to succeed. Uh, what we like about our business is that the majority of the time, music is unique as a form of entertainment, and it's most frequently consumed in the background. 
That's one of the key observations that underlies how Pandora uh, works, and that you can do lots of things if you lean forward, create stations, thumbs up, skip, et cetera. But Pandora is also designed to work for you while you're doing other things. Your head's in a spreadsheet, you're cooking, you're driving, you're uh, partying, uh, uh, whatever. Um, and uh, what that means, because music is primarily consumed in the background, is that our market opportunity is probably bigger than that of Spotify. Historically, about 80% of music listening is let someone else play DJ music listening as opposed to I play my own DJ, I pick my own songs, I build my own uh, playlist. And even the evolution of first Sony Walkman, for those of you who remember that, to the evolution of the iPod didn't fundamentally change that 80-20 uh, characteristic. So we think this opportunity to be uh, in some sense, the next generation of radio and that form of serendipitous listening is a bigger opportunity. Um, but Spotify may still have a wonderful opportunity. Um, there's important differences, too. This gets into kind of the arcane world of digital music, but to the extent some of you get into the world of entertainment and media and content, there are important lessons here. Um, uh, Pandora operates in the U.S. under a statutory license, a compulsory uh, a license. We don't have to go beg the record labels for licenses, let us do business, let us uh, you know, do what we want to do. We operate under certain constraints as a result of that, but are able to do our thing. And importantly, are able to play any piece of music that's ever been uh, released for public sale anywhere in the world. Spotify, on the other hand, and Hulu to some extent is in the same category, uh, is in this kind of endless loop of negotiating deals with rights holders. Uh, and if you do just even kind of a classic, um, the old-fashioned kind of five forces analysis of a business, uh, the, the rights holders, the content holders have very powerful uh, uh, voices in the Spotify kind of model, in the Hulu kind of model, and they have less power, not none, they have considerable power, less power uh, in ours because of the statutory nature of, uh, of radio licensing. So we like that aspect. Uh, 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 as a business. We also like the fact that the way we deliver the music, it makes sense to use in the car, it makes sense to use in a bunch of locations where maybe Spotify is a little bit harder to figure out how you'd use it in the car. But anyway, we're not hell-bent on beating Spotify. We, we want to displace the 200 million people who listen to FM radio today and give them something a lot better. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm, he's got the mic. Oops. I didn't know that. Sorry. Um, uh, I, I was just wondering um, if you could say something about uh, the culture at Pandora and as a kind of internet startup company that really took advantage of new opportunities um, in the next five years, how do you see taking advantage of, of new opportunities or dealing with new challenges kind of in a forward-thinking way, now that you've achieved a, a, a relatively um, stable, you know, existence mm -hmm. and offering, um, how do you move forward and okay. continue to be someone who proposes new new things to people? It's a it's a great it's a great question, and um, uh, I could probably talk. I could give you a whole kind of forty-minute thing on culture. I'm really passionate about it, but I'll maybe just talk about one aspect in particular that I think's been been life or death good uh, for us. Uh, and I'm a deep, deep believer 
that we built this company starting with Tim, the founder, and then those of us who kind of joined with him seven years ago, uh, with a, a tremendous focus on uh, a, a purpose that virtually every employee could hook into. Uh, and uh, what, what our vision is, what our purpose we wrap ourselves around is, uh, is, is taking all of the great music that's been created in the world uh, and connecting with all the people who, uh, who would enjoy that, uh, that, that music. Um, and although that's a very uh, simple uh, kind of concept, it's deeply resonant for us, both as people who love, enjoy music and listen to music, but in many ways even more deeply because so many of the people in the company uh, create music uh, either professionally or various degrees of, of, of amateur musicians, uh, and really understand uh, at a kind of deeply emotional level how hard it is for people who create music to find their audience. The, the story of Pandora starts with Tim Westergren, just out of Stanford undergrad, uh, climbing into a van with his bandmates and spending the next 10 years trying to make it as rock stars, literally what Tim tried to do uh, for, for 10 years. And back in his day, what that meant was you roll the van into Boulder, Colorado, you look for some bulletin boards and telephone poles, and you tack up a placard that says Yellowwood Junction, that was the name of the band that will win a trivia contest someday, um, is playing at such and such bar, and you hope that maybe 10 or 15 people catch those bulletin board posters, telephone pole uh, posters. And that is how bands historically started in this country and built their audience, kind of created what they thought was great music and then worked unbelievably hard through the most inefficient of all processes to connect with people who might enjoy that music. Uh, and all of us hook into this concept that it can be so much better and, and to the benefit of those who create music and to the benefit of those who enjoy music. Uh, and what's the punchline of this and why is it so vital to Pandora? So. Um, the truth is Pandora was, was essentially technically bankrupt twice in its history. In 2002 and 2003, the company which had been started at the very end of the, the big bubble, was started in, in January of 2000, ran out of funding and had no opportunity to get funds uh, in 2002 and 2003. Uh, it wasn't running on fumes, the fumes were gone. Uh, there was a rent eviction from the landlord. Uh, and yet uh, a core group of 30 people uh, continued to move things forward, continued to build the music genome, continued to advance uh, the technology, and eventually got things far enough where in uh, April of 2004 the company could get another round of funding. Uh, as we went through the incredible royalty fight that we went through several years ago, it was a somewhat similar uh, experience. And the punchline of all this is young companies go through really, really hard times. We may have been through harder times than I hope any of you experienced, um, but we've been near death twice in our existence. And the fact that the company was always built on this, uh, with this deep sense of purpose, and we worked hard and we continue to work hard to share that with employees, enabled us to get through it. As opposed to if you start a company, and it's somewhat tempting, I'm an MBA, many people uh, here in this room, say, I have a concept, and it's a very kind of mercenary, left-brain, MBA-ish kind of approach to the business. 
if it lacks that real emotion, that real tremendous sense of purpose, I, I think you can have a much harder time attracting, motivating, and keeping people through the hard times. So really long-winded answer to your question, but one aspect of, of culture that I think has been tremendously vital for us. Thanks for your patience. So um, when we were talking about movies at the beginning, and then I guess eBooks, um, fundamentally talking about the technological advance in sort of distribution affecting the creative process, mm -hmm. how do you think that plays out in music? How does the way that you distribute music to people affect, I guess, what and how people make music? Uh, I think that's a fabulous question. I think there's really interesting uh, work that's going on uh, in terms of, if you take these principles, uh, you see you know, uh, leading edge folks like Trent Reznor, who actually got an Oscar um, for the Facebook soundtrack. Um, many of you may know him much more as the frontman for Nine Inch Nails. Um, but Reznor released an album, I don't know, two, three years ago now, where in some sense he released it in its traditional form but he also released uh, it so that you could take all of the individual tracks, the, the subtracks that make up the recording, uh, in GarageBand and remix it, do pretty much anything you wanted uh, to it. Um, and that's, you know, that would be an example of a musician embracing the co-creation opportunity, kind of moving from this model where I, as the creator, do all the creating and you, as the consumer, just do the, the consuming. Um, and in some sense, that would be the analogy you know, to my story of the, the book that's actually dynamic and that the, the reader co-creates the ending or whatever. I don't know. Uh, and so there are people who, you know, uh, leading edge people like Trent Reznor, uh, who I think have done that uh, in, in music, and I think it's uh, pretty interesting. Um, I still think you know, the vast, vast majority of music today is created the same way that it's been uh, uh, before. Uh, so I'd actually probably put this in the category of still untapped uh, opportunity. But I, I, think it's a, I think it's a pretty rich opportunity, particularly you know, as a band, we think a lot about new and emerging artists. And you know, typically, the fan base of a new emerging artist is very passionate, very into the music. And I, I think maybe it's the marketer in me, the opportunity for the artist to kind of reach out and say, hey, be, be part of this, not just in the sense of buy my CDs or come to my concerts or merch, but actually in some more fundamental artistic way, be part of it, uh, I think is pretty interesting. Oh, we got a mic yeah. on here. So, I've learned to follow the mic. Yeah. So, so what's the rationale for the record labels charging a higher royalty fee to online radio than to traditional radio? And do you think, isn't there maybe like an antitrust um, aspect to that? Um, uh, it's, uh, the question, well, I guess everyone heard the question because of the mic. Uh, it's actually, the record labels would be more than happy to charge traditional radio the same thing they charge us. Uh, it's actually a legal problem in this country. This country is actually pretty screwed up in terms of how it treats the different forms of, of radio. And um, believe it or not, when, when a song plays on AMFM radio in this country, the artist who performs it and their label, if they, they're working with a label, get no compensation at all. And the vast, vast uh, majority of the world, uh, when, to use the Lady Gaga example, when her new song plays on radio in the UK, she gets compensated for that, um, 
uh, for that play, along with uh, Universal, I think is her, her uh, label. Uh, U.S. law actually gives AM and FM a free pass in terms of compensating uh, performing artists and labels. We think that's wrong. Uh, we think it's wrong in part because it's not a level playing field and it's unfair to us, but actually reflecting the, the deep musicianship culture that we have, we think it's just wrong because musicians should be compensated for their uh, work. That's a fundamental uh, principle of ours. So someday we may ask you to write your congressperson and help us fix that. So I, I'm really fascinated by your bio and just, you know, Elon, Saturn, Pandora. Um, and I sit on the board of a number of uh, technology venture back companies. And so my question is, um, what is it about your DNA or your skill set or your training that has enabled you to be effective across such, you know, just very different um, sectors? Um, and a related question, how can I identify that gene or skill set when I'm interviewing executives? Because I often find that um, I'm in a situation where I need to hire a C-level executive, but the skill set doesn't necessarily exist in the sector because we're in a space of innovation. So I need to find someone from another sector to pull them in to then deploy that into a, a new sector. But it's really hard to tease that out of someone's hmm. resume and background. So tell me, what's the secret and how do I find other people like you? I'm, I'm, I, that's a really tough question. I, uh, the first part of your question can be rephrased as, you know, your background, Joe, makes no sense uh, at all. Explain thyself. Uh, as it happens, my, my, although I happen to be a CEO today, and was more recently President Elon, uh, at heart I'm a consumer marketer. And, and you know, out of business school, uh, my passion was really around consumer marketing, but very specifically, um, I wrapped myself around uh, uh, those uh, consumer marketing opportunities where you could really do something game-changing for the consumer, kind of transformative uh, of an industry where the consumer was deeply involved. And uh, in some sense, uh, to do the first parallel from Saturn trying to revolutionizing what it's like to, to, to shop for and, and own and get service a car, um, the connection to Elon was uh, the lending process sucks every bit as much as the car buying process. Uh, and the founders of Elon were interested in me uh, and the VCs, Bob Cagle uh, and Ira Aaron Price, were interested in me because they saw an analogy between uh, transforming car buying, transforming uh, lending. And I saw the analogy and then it fit, uh, you know, hey, that's pretty interesting to take something consumers really hate um, uh, getting a loan, and can we use the power of the internet to make it more transparent and a better uh, experience? Uh, and then when I met up with Tim, I saw uh, not a category where people hate, uh, music's a category people love, uh, but I very much hooked into, hey, digital music creates the opportunity to really transform uh, what it's like to listen to music from a consumer standpoint. So that's my own DNA for what it's worth. Uh, how do you find that? I'm not. 100%, uh, I'm not 100% sure. Um, uh, maybe, it's the, maybe it's somewhat related to the question I, I, I answered before in the sense of um, uh, for all my left brain MBA-ness, I, I am also driven by this deep passion for certain kinds of things that I like to do. 
and maybe part of the secret in your job is to to uncover exactly what people's passions are and does it really fit the 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 opportunity that you're looking at. But it's tough. Other questions? There's got to be yeah, the rest of the room without a mic. What is my opinion on how music should be priced? Uh, incredibly complicated question. If I were to answer it very conceptually, I think the most important thing is the, the recording industry in particular, which is the cell music part of the, the, the business. Uh, I think if you look at it historically, uh, you, you'd say it never, it missed the, the marketing class day that talked about segmentation. Because uh, with very few exceptions, even up until today, uh, music was priced kind of one price. You, you know, an album was priced at X, and maybe they had the concept of new albums were priced at X plus 20%, and uh, you know, the catalog album was priced at X. Um, but I think what, uh, and I'll actually use Trent Reznor as another example, although there are lots of people like him. I think in the new world, what smart musicians are doing and smart labels that are working with smart musicians uh, is adopting a segmented approach. So the album I talked about with Trent Reznor, uh, I simplified it when I said what he did with that release because he actually did I think uh, an online release that was very simple and very cheap, may have even been some of the tracks were free. Might have been, you could get half the album for free or something like that. Uh, and then you could get the whole album, just digital form or something like that, for some kind of price. Let's just call it $10. Um, but then if you wanted kind of all of the bells and whistles, the ability to mix the tracks, whatever, then there was yet another price. And then all the way up to, I think there was a three-digit number on you could actually get the album and the notes and everything and pretty much a, um, uh, you know, something for your living room table, something, a beautiful book uh, of the album for $200. Uh, and then I think he actually even had something that for $5,000, you got the whole album and everything and you got a backstage pass the next time he was in town. Um, now that might not be the best example, but I think it illustrates uh, an approach that says, hey, there's different audience here. There's segmentation matters when it comes to music. It's not, we have this generic thing called the CD. It is one product, one SKU. And other than the fact maybe we price it a little higher when it's new than when it's old, it's one SKU and we don't care at all about segmentation. I think the people who are going to do the best in the music business going forward are people who really embrace, um, uh, embrace segmentation. In a certain sense, it, it fits a general phenomenon that my guess is you all have studied in the sense of freemium. I mean, um, freemium applies to, to the example I gave might be called a freemium example. But I, I, I believe the underlying concept of freemium, Pandora is free for most users, but if you want no ads and other features, you pay uh, a fee. And there's certainly other services that are much more um, uh, complex in terms of their freemium structures. The foundation of that is segmentation, understanding different segments, what's the right value proposition, what's the right pricing for those different segments. In this one-to-one -one unicast world, one can take advantage of smart segmentation much more than in old world. If I were to defend the old world of the record labels, they just sold their CDs through, you know, 
they wholesaled them to, to a small number of, of record store chains, and maybe it was harder for them to implement sophisticated segmentation schemes. That's not true. That excuse isn't there anymore. Uh, so segmentation, consumer insight, different value propositions, different pricing, I think applies to a lot of content in today's world. Uh, could you tell me about uh, your views on the net neutrality and how it's going to change uh, how Pandora, Pandora is going to be priced and what is the impact on customers like us? Like I got a 200 MB plan. Mm -hmm. so. Sure. Uh, net neutrality. Uh, the first thing I always share on net neutrality is that um, in some ways I think it's the wrong question, um, particularly in this country, in that if you actually look at the real economics of mobile broadband wireless, which is where the real rub is, uh, even more so in fixed wireless, the cost to deliver a megabyte of data is unbelievably low. So when you, when you think about your data plan that's $20 or $30 or whatever, the, uh, the, the actual price, not just variable, but fully allocated, to deliver whatever the capacity of that data plan is, whether it's two gigs or five gigs or whatever you're using, uh, there's plenty of revenue in that $20 or $30 data plan to cover the cost of delivering the transport itself. And that cost of transport is going down dramatically. And so the real question actually is, how is it that the operators have any pricing power whatsoever given that it's a fairly commoditized service with extremely low-level costs. Uh, and you can actually see this in certain markets, particularly, say, the UK, even Sprint in the US. Anytime a carrier has excess capacity, you see discounting. You know, Sprint is much cheaper than Verizon and, and AT&T for the simple reason it has capacity. Um, and the cost structure of the business is such, if you have capacity, you want to fill it, and you're willing to cut price to, to do it. Um, and so the question we need to be asking is why is it that in some sense we even need to be worried about pricing, data caps, whatever. Uh, and the simple answer in this country is the real issue is spectrum. In that relative to the amount of transport that is being put on mobile wireless and will be put on mobile wireless as all this neat stuff grows is this country still has, in my view, and I think a lot of smart people's view, far too much spectrum taking care of you know, old-fashioned broadcast TV delivery and not enough spectrum going to wireless. So I actually think the, the answer to net neutrality, well, we could get in a philosophical discussion of net neutrality. Uh, I actually think the much more pragmatic thing is uh, we need to get the spectrum lined up to where it's going to be used because we might have a net neutrality issue if we have a spectrum capacity issue. Um, in that if there's not enough spectrum, then somehow the carriers have to figure out a way to allocate that capacity that's less than the demand. If we solve the problem fundamentally of getting all of the capacity in the spectrum, the underlying cost of the system, everywhere where there's excess capacity, there's downward pricing uh, pressure on um, mobile broadband. 
uh, and there's competitive activity like you see from Sprint in the US, like you see from Hutchinson 3 in the UK. Uh, so long-winded way of saying, I think the real issue is uh, spectrum, and we need to be helping the smart people in our government, like Julius Janikowski, who runs the FCC, who sees this and is trying to get the spectrum reallocated from what made sense 20 years ago when TV was delivered you know, overwhelmingly through over the air to what makes sense 10 years from now when TV is delivered through uh, IP technology and we, lose, we use tons of, uh, uh, of wireless spectrum for mobile data. Does that make sense? Follow-up question is, uh, what is what do you think you as a CEO of a startup has got influence and what it means to small entrepreneurs who are trying to start businesses in these things? Like, we have absolutely zero power. Uh, say the last part again. Uh, how much of influence you can do over this institutional reform you're talking about, allocating spectrum onto the mobile more than the TV, and what it means to the entrepreneurs? Like, can we reliably start a business and uh, not be... Uh, having the danger of getting cut out because of the pricing war? Um, you know, I, I think everyone should be writing their congressperson and telling them to support the FCC in its efforts to get spectrum allocation rationalized in this country. And you might say, well, that nothing ever happens. Funny story about Pandora, we would be out of business if people didn't write and call their congresspeople two to three years ago. Um, it's the only reason we stayed in business. Um, and I saw firsthand the real power of grassroots activity uh, in terms of being able to move Congress. We actually got two bills passed uh, in Congress. You know, there's a saying, you know, that would take an act of Congress, which is a code for that would be impossible. Um, we got that done twice uh, in a 12-month period, and we needed it done in order to survive, and we got it done through grassroots activity. Um, uh, I don't think we disclose that dollar amount, but I mean, we do believe that, that uh, you know, companies need to be politically active. I mean, there are important issues that are being debated you know, in, in our government and in other governments, such as the one I just talked about. And I don't think uh, any of us who are on the forward edge of technologies in particular can, can afford to be silent. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, so please help me again. Thank you all very, very much. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.